All right, well, the conversation on the TYT network. Uh, now we got a great guest for you. It's a real character. Uh, I know uh, uh, very well because I worked with her. Annalise Vincent uh, was a staffer on my Jank uh, 2020 run. Uh, she and I knocked on a lot of doors together. Uh, she was actually in some of my ads. Uh, she has an amazing, uh, buoyant uh, personality cares so much about the issues, so much so that Annalise is not running for office. So uh, I want to tell you what she's running for, and then obviously we'll talk to her. She's right there. She's a candidate for Palmdale City Council. She's now also the vice chair of Our Revolution Los Angeles uh, in, in the Antelope Valley. So that's awesome. Uh, so Annalise, um, great to have you on the Young Turks. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. I'm super, super excited to be here. I really appreciate it. Yeah, no problem. And I like your website, winson2020.com. It sounds like winson, <laughs> get some2020.com. Okay, um, there's that laugh. All right, uh, Annalise. Um, first off, before we decide, we talk about why you decided to run. Uh, give me a little background here for the folks at home. Um, wh where's your family from, and how'd you wind up in Palmdale? Yeah, thank you, thank you. Uh, so I'm a Cuban immigrant. I was born in a small town in Cuba called Venus. Uh, back when Clinton was president, he gave out a limited number of visas uh, for Cubans to be able to come to the U.S. And they did it like a lottery in Cuba, and it was called the Bombo. And so uh, my mom, uh, who was very much anti the Castro regime and wanted to come to the U.S., she, uh, she entered the lottery and she actually won. So we got a visa and we got to fly uh, to California, which was amazing. And I've lived in the Antelope Valley most of my life uh, since then. And that was when I was seven years old. Um, so, you know, my mom's owned a home in Palmdale for about 20 years. I've lived in Palmdale and Lancaster most of my life. Uh, and I mean, it's my community. It's my neighborhood. And when I saw that there was a vacuum of leadership, I felt like it was my responsibility to fill it. All right, great. So um, let's talk about that run then. Uh, so why the Palmdale City Council and what do you think you can get done there that could help folks? So it's funny that you asked that because um, when I first announced that I was running, I got on this big call with a bunch of AV people and a couple of them were Democratic delegates. And when I told them that I wanted to focus on things like not only jobs, but healthcare, a UBI, COVID assistance, uh, you, you know, they said, you're crazy. You can't do any of that from the city council. You would have to be running at a state level, right? Um, so I heard all these reasons why I couldn't do anything to fix any of the issues that were going on. Um, turns out they were wrong. <laughs> so one of the most interesting things that I found out is that everything that we have been told we can accomplish is a lie. We can actually accomplish about a million times more than that. It's just that they don't want us to. They want to keep the status quo. So when I looked around at Palmdale and I saw that nothing was being done to guarantee uh, treatment to COVID patients, that we weren't getting the ball rolling on affordable housing, that we didn't still have jobs up here, I said, you know, what's going on here? So when I looked into the mayor and the city council, I realized that what's going on is what I like to call corrupt inaction. So there's all these issues and they're either corrupt 
and purposefully causing the problems or they're inept and don't know how to do their jobs. Either way, they got to go. So one of the issues was affordable housing. So I looked into how much we were paying contractors for housing. Turns out in LA County, the median price that contractors are charging for one unit is over half a million dollars. And this is for affordable housing. In Palmdale, where I live, it was over 300,000. So these numbers seemed a bit extreme to me. So uh, I went ahead and did some research with my team and it turns out that if we actually used affordable housing manufacturers or worked with uh, nonprofits such as Habitat for Humanity, we could have built 10 up to, to up to 50 times as much housing. That means that a 100 unit apartment complex could have been 5,000 for the same money, for the same money. So we are handing over our tax dollars to greedy contractors and not asking any questions. So that's on the housing front. Then I looked at healthcare. Well, it turns out that there is a, a movement sweeping the nation where over 300 cities have started organizing to put together a resolution demanding Medicare for all. And over 35 of them have already passed those resolutions, including LA and San Francisco. So it turns out in Palmdale, we can go ahead and, and bring that resolution forward, sign it, and demand Medicare for all. And if we get enough cities in California to do this, then Gavin Newsom and our California reps are going to have no choice but to do what needs to be done and make California the first state to pass Medicare for all. And uh, uh, one, of the, one of the other things that I, that I looked into was a UBI. Well, it turns out that there are mayors across the country, including in Florida, testing out pilot UBI programs, and they're giving every resident of the city an income. So I want to push Mayor Hofbauer here in Palmdale to institute that because we can do all these things. It turns out that there's so much that we could have done at a local level, and we just chose not to. Yeah, Mayor Tubbs uh, in Northern California is participating in one of those uh, programs of, uh, about UBI. So you're absolutely right about that. Uh, and uh, obviously Annalise is uh, not going to take corporate uh, campaign donations. So vinson2020.com, that's V-I-N-S-O-N, 2020.com. We'll have the link down below, uh, and there it is right there, so you can see it. You can see how you can donate and volunteer. It's so important. This is the same area that I was trying to represent at the congressional level, and Palmdale does not get nearly enough love uh, nationally and statewide. So a lot of the problems are dumped onto the Antelope Valley, uh, but but the resources don't come along with it to help fix the issues. So it's so important uh, to get uh, uncorrupted, honest uh, people into office there. So which then leads me to the question, Annalise, you know, as, as we saw uh, in my campaign, you and I saw it together, and, and you've seen it uh, happen to progressives in that area a lot. It's not just the Republican Party, it's oftentimes the Democratic Party who does not like you talking about corruption. They didn't like it when I talked about it, Eric Olson talked about it, when you talk about it, they don't like yeah. it. Uh, so uh, any news on what the reception there has been from those circles? Uh, yeah, uh, uh, I was told by the mayor that I was presenting alternative facts, uh, which I had to inform him are not a thing. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, it's just ridiculous. Look, um, I just want to say that um, the inaction here has been ridiculous. And, and, and before I go, I, I would be remiss if I didn't touch on a couple of things. 
You know, first of all, Robert Fuller was found hung in our city, at lynched, okay? And before any kind of investigation was done, before there was, you know, any kind of, of looking at the body and an autopsy, they were pushing the narrative that it was a suicide and had asked people to stop using the word lynching. Enough, okay? We need actual reform. We need actual accountability for the hatred that's coming towards our black and brown brothers and sisters. And really quickly, another thing that I want to touch on is, um, as you guys may know, the very last stimulus bill is about to pass Congress soon. So this is going to be our last opportunity to do something about that and demand that they bail out the American people in the same way that they bailed out corporations. So I want to let you guys know on July 11th, we are going to be having an action with Movement for a People's Party, which we are working with very closely to build a, a new major party with. And we're going to be going to our representatives' homes in our cars, making sure we social distance and we stay safe. And we're going to be demanding that they bail us out in the very same way that they bailed out corporations. Corporations, by the way, that claim that they're people. And if that's the case, they need to give back the trillions and they get 1200 like the rest of us. I like that a lot. Yeah, okay, if you're a person, okay, congratulations, corporation. You get 1200 bucks. <laughs> that's it. <laughs> that's what the yeah. rest of folks got, right? Um, so, Annalise, this is a great point. Um, so, you're also vice chair of our revolution, as I explained in the area. Um, so, what does our revolution do to help progressive candidates like you? Yeah, so I was just elected vice chair of our revolution, Los Angeles. I'm incredibly proud. Uh, so look, the major thing that we're working on right now is not only getting the voices heard of our local candidates in, in L.A. County, but also we are merging with Movement for a People's Party. That's peoplesparty.org if you guys are interested. Uh, like I said, we're creating a major new party to take on the Democratic Party and the Republican Party. The thing is, you know, the largest voting bloc in the country is non-voters, followed by non-affiliation. That tells us that most Americans don't feel represented. So we need to form, uh, in our belief, we need to form a major new party that will actually represent working class people. And that is our biggest uh, project that we're working on right now. We're going to have a convention in August. Uh, and there's a lot of exciting stuff to come. The Yang Gang has joined us. Uh, Shahid Buttar is going to be joining one of our actions this weekend. We have support from Nina Turner, Cornell West, Jimmy Dore. I mean, Bernie Group. It's just amazing. We're really excited. Awesome. Um, and uh, as a lot of you know, watching this show, uh, Shad Buttar is running against Nancy Pelosi uh, in that uh, primary. Sorry, he's passed the primary in the general election in November. Uh, all right. Uh, everybody check out Vincent2020.com. That's V-I-N-S-O-N-2020.com. Link is in the description below. And I just absolutely love that Annalise uh, took action and took the matters into her own hands and said, all right, I'm going to do it. I'm going to run for a local office. So it's Palmdale City Council District 1. Please check it out. If you're in the area, please uh, volunteer for her. It makes a giant difference. Uh, and now we'll reverse roles, Annalise. And as soon as coronavirus is over, I'll come knock on doors for you. All right? Yay! Thank you, Jenk. <laughs> I really appreciate it. And thank you so much for everything you guys are doing. All right, back on a conversation. Uh, we've got a fun, explosive topic for you guys, Russian interference, whenever we talk about that. 
Everybody gets uh, animated. Let's put it that way online. Uh, joining us is David Scheimer. He wrote the book Rigged, America, Russia, and the 100 Years of Covert Electoral Interference. Uh, and if you're wondering if that's by America or by Russia, the answer is both. Um, so uh, the book is mainly focused on Russia, though. So, David, welcome to the program. Uh, and obviously, not only an explosive topic, but one that's very relevant as we've got elections coming up in four months. Um, I want to start with uh, the idea that the Russians might have been able to interfere with the actual voting in 2016, which leads me to wonder if they could do it in 2020. So uh, what are the facts behind that as far as we know them now? I think that's definitely something that we need to watch out for in 2020. I was struck in my research for my book how vulnerable our voting systems were in the summer and fall of 2016 to the point where that exposure captivated the Obama administration. Russian military intelligence was able to probe, scan, and penetrate election systems across the United States. Michael Daniel, the White House cybersecurity coordinator, told me that he was getting daily reports of Russian intrusions into our voting systems. And this exposure was so present that on election day itself, as I reveal in my book, the White House and the Department of Homeland Security were running secret crisis teams bracing for a Russian cyber attack to either alter voter data or alter actual vote tallies, which according to, to officials like John Brennan and Jay Johnson, Russia had the ability to do. So for whatever reason, uh, based on the available evidence, Russia did not actually execute upon that ability in 2016. But given that we now have a president who has solicited rather than sought to deter, as President Obama did, uh, foreign electoral interference, I, I am worried that Russia's calculus may have shifted over the last four years. So does, I don't know if it's revealed in the book or if it's classified. Some folks will look at it, David, as, hey, that, that's uh, fear-mongering. Could they really break into and change the vote tabulations? Uh, some folks will find that outlandish. Um, but w w what are they saying on the record? Did they believe that they definitely had the cap capability to do that in 2016? I, I think the best way to sort of address that skepticism is just to look at the facts. I, I interviewed 26 former senior advisors to President Obama, and, and what I found is that their captivation was the exposure of our voting systems. That is why President Obama issued a warning to Vladimir Putin, brought congressional leaders together to issue a statement about the exposure of our voting systems, um, had Jay Johnson consider issuing a critical infrastructure designation. Even a few days before the election, the White House cybersecurity coordinator told me that he sent a warning to his Russian counterpart requesting that they cease their scans and intrusions into our voter registration databases. And again, the crisis teams were operating on election day itself, and officials like John Brennan, the Deputy Homeland Security Advisor Amy Pope, Jay Johnson told me that what seemed very plausible and very possible was that Russia would disrupt the actual voting process. And, and I analyzed that. And, and what that also reveals is why President Obama made the decisions he did, because he actually waited to retaliate against Russia for another form of electoral interference, which is to manipulate people, as Russia did across social media and with hacked emails until after Election Day, out of the fear that by hitting Putin before Election Day, Putin might actually respond by escalating his operation toward disrupting the actual voting process, as he had done, by the way, in countries like Ukraine in 2014. So, so this was a real possibility that ultimately froze the administration in those fateful months of the summer and fall because of what Russia had the ability to do. So, David, you, you write about how uh, at the federal level, uh, there actually wasn't much the Obama administration could do 
to help safeguard the vote in different states because that's not how our system works. The states handle that. Um, and so to your knowledge, has there been any safeguards put into place in those different states to prevent uh, an attack on the actual vote tabulation from Russia or anyone else? I would say by no means sufficiently. I think the Department of Homeland Security, as has been publicly reported, is seeking to offer assistance to states as it did during 2016, but the Congress has not passed cybersecurity standards for states mandatory on a mandatory basis, which means that states who would like to refuse federal assistance can still do so. And so as a result, because of the decentralized nature of our election system, even if, say, this is just a hypothetical, Pennsylvania cooperates with the federal government and really shores up its defenses, another state like Georgia can say, I don't want you anywhere near my systems. And until the Congress steps in to, to, to resolve that, that inconsistency, our system will remain inconsistent and inconsistent in its security structure. And I do worry that both because, as I said, the current... Uh, occupant of the White House is invited for an interference, but also the coronavirus has built in a pre-existing level of doubt around the sanctity of the voting process. And the Russian tradition is to take advantage of pre-existing vulnerabilities. So it would take very little effort on the part of Russian cyber actors to delegitimize the sanctity of the election, to convince Americans that the vote was not actually stable by, for example, just causing chaos, say, at some polling places by maybe scrambling voter registration databases, which, again, President Obama as senior most advisors on the record say in my book that Russia had the capability to do four years ago. So uh, we know Mitch McConnell did not put those uh, safeguards into place. Uh, we know that if uh, Russia or any other country interferes uh, to uh, on behalf of Donald Trump, there will be no investigation. They'll cover it up instantly. Uh, so there's a potential disaster in the making. By the way, it's entirely And I've said a thousand times over the last decade. These local yokels in the States, they don't know anything. Uh, so the idea that they could prevent an attack from Russia or China or India or anywhere else is preposterous. They couldn't begin to compete with those guys. Uh, and of course we should have national cybersecurity to protect our vote, and we just don't. So God knows what, what'll happen on election day. Anything could happen. Sure. And I, and I think and I, I, I'd add two important points there. One is that we both have to focus on the prospect of an Election Day cyber attack. But we also have to be mindful between now and Election Day of how Russia will seek to manipulate voters, because both forms of attack matter, how Russia seeks to manipulate public opinion and also whether Russia seeks to escalate toward disrupting the actual voting process. The second thing Americans need to keep in mind is what Russia is after. This is a mission to degrade, discredit and delegitimize the democratic model to corrupt our process of succession so as to take away the, the the sense of a future in our society, to inhibit progress, to promote dysfunction, so as to corrupt our democracy itself, which is part of a global mission of Putin's Russia, because right now this is not just happening in America. I interviewed the president of Montenegro, the former president of Colombia, both of whom are under siege by Russian actors who are seeking to discredit again and corrupt their elections as a mean of transforming their democratic systems themselves. So this is part of a global strategy and America is a part of that story and we need to recognize it as such. Well, so David, that leads to a couple of questions. One is, um, you know, when it comes to just influence, um, I, I don't know what could be done about it. And so I'm curious your take on that. 
And especially given that we don't have the moral high ground, uh, we've interfered in a thousand elections. Um, and so, um, you know, to say that tr uh, Russia is trying to influence elections, well, of course, of course they are. Uh, anyone who thinks they're not is being incredibly naive. But but we we do similar actions, to say the least, let alone killing people we don't like and committing coups. That doesn't mean that we should be hands off about Russia doing it to us. But but what's your take on what we can do uh, to limit their influence, given that it is a free country and they could send people in to say whatever they want? Sure, and I, I I do want to sort of clarify for viewers. I, I I worked very hard to get at the current nature of American policymaking. I interviewed more than 130 people, eight former CIA directors, many foreign officials, and what I found is that American policymaking has evolved. Whereas the CIA interfered in many elections during the Cold War, we have moved away from that practice, that covert practice in the post Cold War period, with rare exceptions that I do detail in the book. But in terms of what can be done, yes, we cannot stop Russia from manipulating voters covertly. The penetrability of elections is endemic to the democratic model. Vladimir Lenin saw that. Vladimir Putin sees that. Soviet and now Russian leaders have been targeting American elections for a century. The KGB targeted American elections throughout the Cold War, by the way, to hurt Republican candidates, because this is a national threat. It's not a political threat. But moving forward, we can manage this. We can uh, mitigate the effectiveness of this through efforts by the citizenry to be aware, by the media not to be played, by social media companies to look out for foreign malign behavior, by Congress um, to step in and, and install measures that would help defend our elections, and by the president, obviously not this president, but moving forward, to lead a coherent national policy to secure our elections at home and to defend our elections and deter this sort of behavior abroad. And I argue that we'd need a strategy of renewal to directly answer Russia's strategy of tearing down our democracy. The one thing I'm positive of is that the social media companies need to do a way better job of rooting out bots and fake pages and fake tweets. Uh, and, uh, you know, I know Twitter on some grounds is trying harder than Facebook, but the bots on and trolls on, on Twitter are just absolutely out of control and so easy to manipulate. Uh, so the more needs to be done on that count, no question about it. Um, Absolutely. And I, I mean, I would just say, too, I mean, Americans need to I really feel strongly need to be aware. You know, I spent four hours interviewing a former KGB general. And what he told me is that the, that Soviet intelligence, now Russian intelligence, their mission is to direct our process of succession by corrupting propaganda channels like social media platforms today or like newspapers a generation ago. We need to be on guard for that and we need to protect ourselves against that because this is about the sovereignty of our democracy, regardless of political party. This is an issue that all Americans should be invested in because if foreigners can choose our leaders, then we will not have a functioning democracy. All right, David, I just got to challenge you on America not being as involved in elections anymore. Please. Uh, so, uh, you know, you talk to eight CIA directors, they told you that the CIA doesn't do it, to which I say, of course, that's what they told you. Uh, but we see the coup uh, that we just tried in uh, Venezuela, where there was a coup in Bolivia. Uh, the coups appear to go on, on, go on unabated. 
So I, I, I can't comment on that. What I research is election operations, not coup plotting. Those are two separate forms of covert action. But what I would say to your point about CIA directors is the art of reporting is getting as many perspectives as possible on background, off the record, on the record. I didn't just interview eight former CIA directors. I interviewed many, many more CIA officers, many, many more national security officials. And I actually revealed a covert operation that the CIA executed to interfere in an election in 2000 that hadn't previously been on the public record. And I got Bill Clinton and I interviewed him and he recognized that he did authorize that inf that operation in our interview um, in order to work against the tyrant Slobodan Milosevic. So, so I worked my hardest to get at what CIA policy is today. I map out the case as to why what I say we've moved away from electoral operations is true in terms of our not wanting to undermine ourselves in doing so and recognizing that if we're caught, it would broadcast American democracy to the world. So, so do I, am I saying that the CIA doesn't do this at all? I don't think that's credible. Do I think the CIA is doing this as frequently as Russian intelligence with the same objectives and the same means? I don't think that matches up to reality. And I think folks who think that is true should, should I hope, examine chapter six of my book um, because, I, because I really go through the history of this in a way that has not been done before as to what the CIA did a generation ago, what the CIA does today, and how that aligns with the evolution of American foreign policy making in general. Yeah, I hear you. Uh, and Yes, we, no, they interfering in a, yeah, yeah, I'm not buying it to be honest. Uh, <laughs> uh, the, they admitted to interfering in, in an election uh, opposing a tyrant. Ooh, what an admission. Uh, did we not try to help Ahmed Chalabi win the Iraqi elections? Is Ahmed Chalabi not a CIA uh, uh, asset? Come so on. I actually, so I actually go through in the book debates within the agency and within the Bush administration over whether to interfere in the Iraqi election with the covert action program in 2005 and the actual decision not to do that. And I have six officials on the record about that debate and why they pulled back. So again, is this something the CIA doesn't do at all? I don't think that's true. I, Leon Panetta, for example, in the book describes programs he oversaw in 2009, 10, and 11 as CIA director to influence foreign media. My argument is that there has been a divergence in American and Russian foreign policy making, whereas the KGB and CIA were in this game with the same intensity as they were during the Cold War. There's been a divergence now as Putin is targeting again elections and democracies all over the world by spreading disinformation across social media, by stealing and releasing sensitive documents, by targeting voting systems as in America and elsewhere in order to tear down democratic systems. So, so I do not believe there is an equivalency here but uh, between America and Russia, but I do think we should learn from the CIA's history, which is why I go into great detail as to how both Soviet, Russian, and CIA have sought to interfere in elections around the world over the last hundred years in my book. Yeah, and, and look, I, I don't want anybody to be naive on either side. Uh, so there's some folks who now think uh, the CIA interferes in elections, but those... Uh, poor Russians and poor Vladimir Putin, they would never. Uh, and that is hilarious. Um, it, Putin is not a fan of democracy, to say the least, um, and uh, and certainly not a fan of us. And so can they do that? Absolutely. Uh, am I worried about it in 20? If you're not worried about it in 2020, you're not paying attention. There's no way in the world that those state governments have people who can counteract hackers like the Russians and other countries have. There's no way. So God knows what's gonna happen in 2020. And the Republicans, we've lost them as a, uh, you know, they, uh, they uh, maybe the other people in media would find it controversial. I don't find it at all controversial. McConnell and Trump would be ecstatic 
of a foreign country rigged the election on behalf of the Republican Party. So they're never going to do anything about it. Never. Sorry, and, 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 and I know that at just one point, and I, I agree, and, and three of President Trump's advisors said to me in my book that they actually think Donald Trump wants Russia to interfere in our election. And the last thing is I'll just say, as we prepare for that attack, my book maps out the history of these operations going back again 100 years because what I reveal is that there are patterns, there are lessons in these stories and CIA, KGB, Russian operations to interfere in elections that should and can instruct how we as citizens defend our own elections, our own sovereignty moving forward. And, and at our own peril, we ignore those lessons and just pretend like this has never happened before because it has. 2016 was just an evolution of a long running practice and 2020 is shaping up to be that next chapter. But this is a very old story. And, and I really believe strongly that there's much to be learned from it. All right, David Scheimer, the book is rigged. Uh, America, Russia, and 100 Years of Covert Electoral Interference. Everybody check it out. Obviously an interesting read. David, thank you for joining us on the program. Appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me.